Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Okay, thank you all for coming. Now, just logistically, uh, we have to kind of move, pull forward a bit because we need to keep a pathway going through the back. And also, if you're standing next to the double doors back there, you might want to be careful because people are coming through, uh, back and forth through those doors, and you don't want to get hit. Uh, if you're on the stairs as well, please take care. We don't want a troop of young children coming down and trampling you, so just be aware that people might be coming up and down the stairs. Uh, okay. So thank you for coming today uh, to uh, the Art Gallery of South Australia. My name is Russell Kelty, the curator of Asian art here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. And uh, welcome to Misty Mountain, Shining Moon, the Japanese Landscape Envisioned. And this particular room, which is described as animating the landscape. And this is very, a very pertinent part of Japanese belief and Japanese culture still today. That, they, that this belief that the land is permeated by these very powerful spots filled with particular energy, which have been identified hundreds, if not thousands of years before, and that there are numinous kami, or numinous deities, which pervade the landscape, at times are brought down from the mountains and the rough, rugged world that they live in to inhabit different yashiro, or rocks, or trees. It's believed that the land is pervaded by these things, and that it is the obligation, to a certain extent, for the people to placate them, venerate them, through dance, through sumo, through entertainments, so that they will not cause trouble or wreak havoc on their daily lives. There's also a sense that ancestors play a role in this. And that is why people usually, during New Year's, return to their ancestral home or their homes, however long that their family has been there, to go and worship uh, for the new year, for their family, and so forth. So this is a very, you know, we talk about historical things often in this place, in this gallery, in these galleries, but these have very contemporary ramifications. And it's important to remember that as you walk through the gallery. Things may have been created a long time ago, but they're still relevant today. Now, with us today to kind of take this, partake on this journey, we have the wonderful Dr. Shoko Yoniyama from the University of Adelaide, who's an associate professor there. And her studies recently, although she started out as a sociologist, have actually uh, focused on the landscape, animism, and kind of contemporary culture. And so she's very well suited to have this conversation. So we're going to have a great dialogue. I'm going to talk about this wonderful sculpture in the front. She will talk about something equally as interesting, yet more contemporary. And then we're going to open it up for a dialogue about the landscape of Japan, these numinous deities known as kami, their complexities, and how they still impact Japanese lifestyle, Japanese pop culture, such as Pokemon. Bet you didn't see that one coming. Pikachu, things like that. Uh, and then, obviously, we can open it up to questions. So thank you, Shoko Yonoyama-sensei, for coming today. We really appreciate it. We know you're very busy, and thank you very much for coming. So to start off, we're going to talk about this wonderful sculpture in front of you. Now, I just want to say um, many of you knew Max Carter, MJM Carter AO, who passed away a couple weeks ago, uh, who underwrote the creation of that wonderful AGSA 500 book that was launched last week. He also really provided funding and acquisitions for this show, which would not have, which if not, would not, it would not have been possible. And one of the main things he funded was this fantastic image of uh, a deity known as Gozu Tenno. Now, what's interesting is, is we have 
carbon, radiocarbon dated this sculpture to 12th century. So it was created sometime in the 1100s, and it speaks to a culture almost a thousand years ago that we think is so unbelievably distinct from our own. And yet, you may not realize that this deity was largely venerated for one particular reason, to stop epidemics in downtown Kyoto a thousand years ago. Now, this may draw some parallels. Recently in world events, you may have heard of COVID, and that's how this reoriented our landscape, both psychologically, physically, globally, and how it had a huge impact on the way the world actually operated. For the first time, you could see the Himalayas from downtown Delhi uh, in Japan, you know, stopping of cars. You probably could see Mount Fuji as well to a certain extent. So it had an impact. These epidemics, pandemics, have an impact on our landscape and the people within that landscape. And this deity is very intriguing. It's not simply a kami, what's known as a kami or Japanese deity. It's also a Buddhist deity. It's associated with yin and yang, directional sense and calendrical kind of divinations. It pervades early Kyoto. People have speculated that Gozu Tenno actually translates as kind of heavenly deity of ox mountain, ox-headed heavenly deity. And some people have speculated that the ox part actually refers to a mountain in India where very important sandalwood was harvested for cremation ceremonies. Others have speculated that he may have been an in northern Indian king who propitiated diseases in northern India, and others have speculated many different things. We're not quite sure exactly when he entered Japan, but it's obvious that he was kind of pushed along the Silk Road from India through China and then ended up in Japan sometime in the ninth century and became associated with what's known as Yasaka Jinja, downtown Kyoto, which is now known, was known as Gion Jinja. And Gion refers or is a transliteration of Jetavana, one of the first monasteries associated with the historical Buddha. So deep-seated engagement with Buddhist beliefs and then kind of brought into the world of Japan and venerated as a deity associated with epidemics. And to give you some sense of what it was like in Kyoto in the 9th and 10th century, there were smallpox diseases. There were diseases of all kinds, pestilence, constantly haranguing people. And we may view this as a sculpture, an artistic sculpture, but actually this was more like a public service message. When things were going really badly, he would be paraded out in what's known as a mikoshi or a palanquin through the streets so people would know to go back into their houses, to stay inside, to not go outside, to not fraternize with somebody else. Does this sound at all familiar to you, having just arrived from COVID and hopefully we don't have to go back there? So this idea that these historical works have no kind of prominence or connection with our daily life is totally untrue. So how would he have been worshipped? Well, we don't know for sure. Um, but there are many, many shrines in, in Kyoto dedicated to stopping epidemics. And so he would have been ensconced in a shrine, very rarely if ever seen by the public, brought out on auspicious days uh, for the calendar and paraded probably around Kyoto. Uh, there's other theories that they often paraded them down to Osaka, to the port, to kind of allow the evil to kind of walk out the door into the sea. And so it's quite an extraordinary work of art. There's nothing like it in Australia and when you look at it closely, it looks rather confounding. It doesn't look anywhere near as peaceful 
and kind of recumbent as those Shinzo, or deities in the back query, uh, the male and female Shinzo deities, which are based on courtiers of the Heian period. This is more wrathful, kind of difficult to handle. If you look behind him, you can see the wind, uh, the kami of the thunder, uh, Raijin, and the kami of wind, Fujin, in the background, and he actually resembles this 19th century representation of the god of thunder. He has this grimace on his face. He has fangs protruding from his mouth. He has a furrowed brow and intense gaze. The two, uh, he has two horns coming out of his head, obviously in almost this like ice cream cone effect of the hair is quite extraordinary. Uh, if you look around, you look at his garments. He's actually wearing the garments associated with uh, Buddhist guardian deities that you see in China in ninth century Tang China in, in rock sculptures. And, and when you look back and look at sculpture from this era in Japan, the colors are very similar to other uh, kami that we know of. And so we know he's from this period. Walk around him. The colors are subdued and yet very vibrant and bright. There's actual textile decorations, probably similar to textiles that were created in the 11th and 12th century. So quite a document of this period. Uh, and quite an extraordinary article to have in the collection. Now, if, if we look if we think about the worship of kami and worship generally, veneration generally, it's often the result or it's often to foster community. What's really important to understand about Shinto, we understand the way of the gods, so it's, so it's said, is that this is very much a 19th century creation. In the late 19th century, after Western powers had come to Japan and opened forcibly up Japan, Japanese ports, there was a reaction from uh, Japanese population to get rid of anything foreign. It's called the Shinbutsu Bunri, essentially the separation of kami and Buddhism. They believed that Buddhism, which had arrived 1,200 years before, was something foreign and needed to be purged from the system, just like us Westerners who caused all manner of mischief in Japan. And so there was this belief going forward that kami and Shinto were separate from Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism, but actually... They're very closely interlinked, and you know, Buddhism probably gave form to most kami that we see in sculptural form today, which arrived in the 6th or 7th century. So it's very important to remember. And he himself represents these very different aspects of belief in Japan. As a Buddhist deity, he's Gozu Tenno. As a, a kami, he's known as Susano, which actually is depicted up on the left-hand side. And as a Taoist deity, he's known as Kami, kami Chitenno, Kami Tendo, or the Kami, or the heavenly deity of the way. And it was said that if you wanted to placate disease or you wanted to have good fortune, one of the ways of doing this was to look towards his direction. And you could either put a placenta in the ground or you could, you could uh, modulate a horse saddle in that direction. That would bring you good luck. This is back in the 12th century, remember. Things were a little different. But what's interesting is, is that as different as we see that society uh, in the past, it actually has connections with our society today and the way our society reacts to these unfortunate events. And when they are so unfortunate and science cannot help us, we turn to pictures, images, anything to placate them. And so that is my segue <laughs> into Yonayama Sensei's part of this discussion. Yonayama Sensei. Okay. Thank you very much, Rusty, for your kind introduction, and thank you, everyone, for coming. So um, when I um, 
saw this statue for the first time, which was end of last year. Um, uh, Russell introduced me to this statue. I was stunned because this represents something really disrupts the, what we take for granted in the West, which is that human image and animal together to be a god. You know, so three things all in one. So that was really radical. I mean, it seems radical to me, so I was very, very interested. And my interpretation of this is slightly different from Russell's because I thought this is kind of cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but look at his feet. I thought it's really cute, you know. So the face is, it looks like, um, you know, my father who tried to be, when he tried to be fierce, but not exactly fierce. And so I, I thought, um, I really like this statue. So anyway, this reminded me of what's called Amabie. Have you heard of Amabie before? And if you haven't, please don't Google it now um, because I'm, I'm going to give you the description of Amabie and I'd like you to imagine how this creature would look like. So there are three things. So Amabie lives in sea. Second, she has, well, it looks like she, actually. She has a human face with a beak and long hair. And her body is covered with scales, and she doesn't have any arms. She has three legs, which look like long fin. So have you imagined it? So it's like a mermaid, right? So this little image is Amabie. And this was first kind of kept in the record in 1846, 1846. That is the end of, towards the end of Edo period, where still samurais were doing things, you know. And um, when I saw the picture for the first time, I was stunned because it's so cute. It's, uh, it's almost like a manga-like, you know, and I thought it's hoax because this came famous became famous and there is a Amabie boom now in Japan since the COVID time. Um, I thought it's a hoax because it's just incredibly contemporary, you know. And it wasn't known until 2020, but it get to known because there is a specialist store in Tokyo specializes in yokai hanging scroll. And yokai is a supernature, supernature, uh, apparition. It's a ghost, like, you know, it's a, it's a, I'll come back to it later. But anyway, so for anybody to imagine it like that in, at the end of the Edo period, it's really surprising. And especially when this was drawn by a local official who listened to the person who actually saw it in the sea. So, and I thought it's hoax, but actually this is kept in the uh, Tokyo, uh, not Tokyo, Kyoto University uh, Library Digital Archive, so it's real. But anyway, once this is, uh, got known, it spread like, you know, like fire in Japan because that was in the middle of COVID time, and this has the power to ease uh, the COVID, the pandemic. So the same, you know, power as, as this one. So, um, Legend goes that in order to quiet down the pandemic, you draw the picture of Amabie yourself and carry it 
and spread it as, as much as you can. So that was the best kind of self-promotion, isn't it? You know, carry, you know, draw my picture and give it to people and you'll be saved, right? So anyway, uh, the next picture, please. Um, so the Ministry of Education, not Education, Ministry of Health and Welfare decided to use it, stop COVID through by using this image. You know, so it's official now. And if you could show the next one, and this is more like a you know, cartoon-like you know, configuration of Amabie, which spread all over the world through media. So it's so pretty. And can you see the contemporary relevance here in terms of original image? It's just so contemporary. You know? So that is very interesting. And the next image is actually another um, depiction of Amabie, and done by um, Mizuki Shigeru. The name may not be familiar, but have you seen Gegege no Kitaro, Kitaro in the graveyard, uh, broadcasted in ABC in early 2000? It's about all about yokai. And yokai is the mystical creature in the nature of Japan, in nature of Japan. It's like a part animal, part ghost. They do bad things, but they can be good too. So when something bad happens, like disaster, people tend to, you know, pray to yokai to save, uh, you know, uh, those people. So it's very interesting thing. Uh, but they are everywhere in Japan, everywhere. So Gegege no Kitaro, that particular cartoon or anime, uh, was uh, broadcasted all over the world, and it's still very popular. And part of that is Amabie. It's, it's at front somewhere. It'll. So anyway, this was the beginning of yokai-like thing to be you know, used and, uh, and captured and in, in, in pop culture. So the uh, example I can think of is Pikachu. Pikachu, do you know Pikachu? Yes. Uh, have you seen this image before? So Pikachu is really, it doesn't look like yokai, but it's, they live in nature. This is one of them, but it's the kind of leader of Pokemon. And Pokemon, there are millions, not millions, maybe hundreds of Pokemon. And they're all in nature. It's not seen, it's not visible normally, but you can see sometimes, and their power goes up as they evolve. So it's really interesting, but underlying that is the notion that in Japan there are eight million gods, deities, you know, in nature. So this is a, a contemporary uh, application of that notion. And the next one is, do you know Totoro? Yes. Totoro, yes, Totoro. Totoro is, I'm sorry, it's dark, isn't it? I'm so used to uh, speak with PowerPoint and this is really unusual for me to be speaking without images. So anyway, Totoro is a tree nature. Of course, it's the one of the most famous anime by Miyazaki Hayao of Studio Ghibli. And he is actually in the, at the top of the you know, Western culture civilization at the moment because even Shakespeare Company in England has, you know, has a theatrical performance of Totoro since two years ago. And it has won many awards. So anyway, Totoro is now important. So what I'm trying to say is that through this uh, anime and manga, which is now globally popular, those images of animism, you know, the fact that, well, the belief that there are spirits in nature is kind of, kind of um, imported to the minds of children 
and adults who are watching the video, I mean, animate together. So without them really realizing what they are understanding, those images are imbued to the minds and hearts of children, which is really interesting because I think this exhibition actually, and congratulations for that, represents something really, really important for the world in future. I might even say the ideas that are, help you to reimagine different kind of future, sustainable future is here. The reason I say that is that, you know, people say, oh, okay, climate change, you have to rethink human nature relationship. Yeah, Do, would you agree? We have to rethink human nature relationship because it's, we are destroying the world, right? But, well, even Pope said that in 2016 that the human depiction of a human nature relationship in the Bible has to be rethought. Okay. So agreement is there, but we don't know how to do it because we have what Amitabh Ghosh, you know Amitabh Ghosh, the novelist, Indian, uh, what he calls crisis of imagination. We can't imagine something entirely new when we don't have references. What we are seeing here are the references, visual references of the different kind of human nature relationship. That is that human nature relationship got embodied in one, you know, to help us, you know. So um, that is very, very important to me. And there are three keywords here. One is human nature relationship or more contemporary way to say it's human, non-human relationship. And the second one is unseen world. It's all about unseen world, how to, how to represent unseen world. The third is animism. And animism is the notion that there are spirits in nature. And Totoro is precisely that. Totoro is tree spirit. You can't see it if you're adults. Children can see it, you know? So, uh, and as I said, Totoro is in the mainstream of Western culture now. So we are kind of moving towards that direction. And even UNESCO realizes the importance of revising human nature relationship. You know, it uh, launched uh, the world's flagship report that comes up only every 25 to 30 years. So those flagship reports really is important to decide the general direction of education in future. And they said, oh, well, we have to rethink human nature relationship. What we are doing now is not enough. Even to be the, a good steward of nature, the environment is not good enough. We need to listen. We need to listen to what nature is saying. I nearly died when I read that because it's so incredibly different with what we believe and radical. So, but the thing is, we don't know how to get there because there is a lack of references. There is a crisis of imagination and that's what we are looking at here. So I really would like to congratulate you, Russell, and the art gallery for, you know, displaying this particular display, but also for holding those beautiful, you know, artworks and then be able to articulate the, the significance of that. That fox over there, for instance, he's or she's, I don't know, uh, it is looking at its figure that is reflected in the pond because while he's or she's doing that, she's going to be 
transformed into a human woman. You know, so there is a, a blurment of, you know, the human nature relationship, the, the, the distinction is very much blurred there. So that's one example of that. And that's no, uh, you know, um, how do you call it, the garment? And yeah. no, no theater itself, it's all about how to break the, the boundary between the seen world, this world, and unseen world, the other world. How they do it by playing this, um, you know, uh, fruit, which is uh, consisted of two different um, uh, bamboo. And because bamboo is never straight, the, the lines are not straight, the, the sound, they make funny sound. It's a piercing sound that breaks hole between two, two walls and then through the hole, you know, the ghost can <laughs> travel. So all those things, uh, if I start talking, I can go on forever, so I'll stop here. But I just wanted to say, and another thing, um, Amitabh Ghost said that at, in this world, you know, the, we are all relying on words, words, you know. Um, logocentricism, she, he says, but now we are moving towards the age where visual images become so important. So important messages come visual images. So I believe the, the role of art gallery is going to be really enormously more important than, than so far. Sorry, I spoke too much. <laughs> you spoke just enough. You spoke just enough. You spoke just enough. <laughs> So I thought since we had you here, we could have a very short discussion and then we could open it up to the floor. Okay. Because this is your first time uh, talking at, speaking at the galleries, is this correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. so yeah, it's it very, is. very good, very good event. <laughs> um, you know, one thing that's very interesting, you know, we don't look alike at all and we grew up in different places, but <laughs> actually there is a um, relationship between us. Uh, I grew up, or I stayed, when I was living in Japan, I lived in Shimane, which has a very, very important Shinto shrine named um, Izumo Taisha, one of the great three, so they say. And Yoniyama Sensei grew up in Totori, which is just a hair above Shimane, and equally as kind of naturally beautiful. Uh, both prefectures, unfortunately, are very economically depressed because all the children leave as soon as they can and go to Tokyo, but that actually results in this very beautiful landscape uh, which you can inhabit and swim in and think about and walk in. And one thing I was wondering about was you started out in sociology, but you've come to realize this interest between pop culture and animism and Shinto and landscape. And I was wondering if you're growing up in such a beautiful, pristine landscape, and when Japanese landscape is beautiful, it is extraordinarily beautiful, it, if that had an influence on your thinking and the way you, what you write about and why you write and... Yeah, definitely. Yes, uh, thank you for the question. Uh, I wasn't aware of it when I was in Japan, <laughs> and I wasn't aware of it when I was younger, but that, that's my frame of reference. You know, that's where I can go back to, to find questions and answers and reference points, so definitely yes. And when I took my students, university students, to my hometown, they were saying, oh, are those mountains so beautiful and so mystical? And I said, are there any mountains here? So, you know, so the local people don't know the significance of it. Only when you see it from outside, you know, with a different perspective, you appreciate uh, the, the cultural meaning and significance of it. So that's what I've done. So in that sense, I'm very fortunate to be able to, you know, re-evaluate re 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 the, the kind of cultural resources that I had. 
Another question for you is, uh, I'm asking you because I think you probably can answer this better than I can. <laughs> Thank you. Shinto is ostensibly always pitched to foreigners as this way of the gods, the way of nature, and, uh, you know, kind of a natural way of being. Do you think there is anything that Shinto in its current iteration can teach us about how to be in the world now that there's all these pressing concerns? Or do you think this connection is dubious? Um, I don't know whether I can answer the question. What you have to be careful of about Shinto mm. is that there are conceptually two different kinds of Shinto. Mm. One is the Shinto, the kind of Shinto that can be a state ideology. You know, Shinto was used as an ideology of war, mm. you know, and so that is, the, the reminiscent of that is still there mm. slightly. But there is also Shinto as a really very grassroots kind of folk, folk level Shinto, yeah. folk Shintoism. And that is very important. That is very animistic. So what was your question again? I think that was, <laughs> I, I was wondering, do you think there is any way that Shinto or the belief in kami and rituals that was, and really if Shinto is about anything, it's about purity and ritual and all of these things. Is there anything that it can teach us about a way to navigate our relationship with the natural world in a new way? Yes, yes. I think that's precisely why mm. uh, Shinto is so popular these days, mm. you know, outside Japan. Mm. In Japan, we don't think about it. I didn't <laughs> even know the word Shinto until I came <laughs> Shinto, oh, you know the shrine there, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? um, but be precisely because of that possibility, it's yeah. been appreciated and valued outside mm. Japan, and that is, I think, is good. Yeah. But... Um, if you are familiar with Studio Ghibli's, you know, work, Miyazaki Hayao's anime, he never, ever uses Shinto mm. word or kami even. Yeah. He always says something in nature, something in nature. You know, that's all he says because he, he was brought up in, in during the war, so mm. he knows about all those ideological, ah. you know, uh, risks, mm. uh, you know, those connotations about the world. Mm. And it is indeed very much a structured kind of religion. Um, so I, I would like to use animism, mm. folk animism, rather than, Shinto, rather than Shinto. But also animism has its own negative image. Mm. Animism, in most people's mind, it's a pre-modern, pre-pre-modern, you know, primitive kind of religion. Mm. But animism has been revised these days and is seen as a new kind of philosophy, yeah. new ways of relating to nature, and I call it postmodern animism. Postmodern <laughs> <laughs> or critical animism. <laughs> anyway, so uh, yeah, there is a very um, a lot of potentiality mm. in thinking that way. I think because Shinto really is an English. It is. way of referring to yeah. what really were regionally diverse kind of subcultures. And if you, any of you have been to Japan, which I know a lot of you have been, Japan is exceptionally mountainous. And it actually, back in the day, was very difficult to traverse and move between regions. And so regional cultures became very essential. And obviously, the way of venerating these deities which existed there was through very ritually diverse ways, such as no and sumo and all these. So Shinto as a kind of state ideology is one thing, as Yonayama Sensei was saying, but regionally diverse it still is and very That's distinct right. from That's one right. another, which That's is fascinating. Right. That's yeah. right. 
So it's diverse. It's 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 based on each locality. Each it's very, that's why it was seen to be so dangerous by Meiji government. Ah, that's right. why it was all sort of administered and centralized. No it, uprising. Because and yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So it's very political too. It is very political. Yeah. But we're not interested in the political. It's fantastic. On this side, we're interested yeah. just in yeah. the art stuff. Yeah. So uh, with with the remaining time, I think if there's any questions, you know, Yonayama Sensei is taking time out of her schedule, busy, busy, busy schedule. So if you have any questions for her, uh, by all means, we can pass around the mic and um, so, ask. So her. what was your relationship to the shrine when you were growing up? Uh, to go there to pray when I'm passing, just to say, oh, I should pass the exam, please. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so every shrine has a different kind of reason to travel. So mm. the shrine I grew up next to was known as the the love shrine. So if you wanted to get married to somebody, you wanted to get a boyfriend, you'd go there, write on a little tablet called an Emma, put it on a tree, and hopefully you'd have a boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever you're interested in come it, the next year. Yeah it's, yeah, it's really part of, yeah, it's, it's really, yeah. So we never think about Shintoism. It's part of the everyday life. So it's like, um, it's almost like a police station in a community. <laughs> you know, you just pass it and just go if there is something you want to ask. Uh, there are rituals, you know, important dates for Shinto, you know, uh, uh, and we do that uh, without thinking too much. And each household normally has Buddhist altar and also Shinto shelf too. Mm. So it's perfectly okay to have two of them, you know, and the purposes are different. You know, uh, basically Buddhism for death, Shinto is for <laughs> life. life. <laughs> sort of. Sort of. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned the relationship to Pokemon. Now, I can see with the school groups that that's going to be a real draw card. But could you vocalise that connection uh, clearly for, for me? Because... I have a vague notion from what you said, but I'd really like to hear you explain it. Thank you. Na na relationship with nature? Um, yeah, the Pokemon and how it relates to um, the, co the collection po and yeah, nature. Yeah, yeah. Pokemon. Mm. Actually, a very strong corollary between. Uh, ah, yes. And yeah. Yes. Thunder. So his tail is. Uh, you know, he can produce electricity. That's why his tail is like, ju -ju 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 -ju, right? Okay. And this is Raijin, who is the god of lighting, thunder. You know, he creates, well, a thunderstorm. Yeah. So <laughs> there is a very striking similarity there. Uh, so that's a very great example of. Now, we can't, we can't in any way say that the person who created Pokemon was thinking about. Raijin, but these deities are so pervasive in Japanese culture, pop, you name it, that it's not out of the realm of possibilities that yeah. they were thinking the same That's thing. right, that's right. And these actually gods remind me of um, more recent um, manga anime, which is called um, Weathering With You, Weathering With You uh, by Shinkai Makoto. You may not know, but it's all about climate change global warming and how young people live in there. And uh, it basically that Tokyo, it, it doesn't stop raining in Tokyo and what to do about it. So it's all about this. And it's a very spiritual story too. 
So um, it's all those hints about you know, cultural elements explaining Japanese pop culture, which is globally popular, is all here. You know, I can see that. If you're familiar with Astro Boy, you know, King by the White Lion, uh, the author is Tetsuka Osamu, and, um, and that folks, um, that, that idea is used in his work a lot of times, you know, folks becoming human being, human beings becoming folks, and, and then it's from there, you know, so all those ideas are all in here. It's very, very interesting. Um, I was talking to my tour group for Misty Mountain the other day and they said, oh, Shinto religion was banned because it was inciting violence, which probably explains when you said it was an ideology of war. Can you elaborate on that? Yes. Uh, during the war and, I mean, before, after Shinto was, has become a state ideology in Meiji, which is after Edo period, and the Meiji period started in 1868, um, uh, so it was used as a state ideology, which means that on top of the Shinto, uh, there is imperial family. And emperor is actually kami, the god, which is in human body, alive. And that was used as the ideology to go to the war and kill people outside Japan. So that was very strong. And um, so people, the Japanese soldiers, um, they, they believe that they die for the emperor, for the country. So, so that was the ideology. And that aspect is still there in Japan. Uh, and each time Japanese politicians visit um, Yasukuni Shrine, which enshrines the war dead, uh, there is a big row, you know, in, in Northeast Asia, Korea, China. Their, their government complains a lot in, well, duty, yes. Just one note on that is that, mm -hmm. you know, during the war, the pilots that took their planes into the ships when they ran out of fuel and ammo was it's known as Kami Kaze. Oh. And this Kami, you know, Kami is in Kami and Kaze is in wind. And this is actually a, a 13th century name for the destruction of the Mongolian flotilla, which is going to invade Japan, but was deterred by a period, a series of divine winds, essentially, it's called. And so what uh, Yoni Amazon said is very, saying is very true, and it's really important to state this, that state or, yeah, state Shinto is very different to the, the relationship with landscape and luminous deities that you get all around Japan often has no connection. So they're very different things. Not a question, but a comment about um, Studio Ghibli. There's a movie that is called Pompoko. So it's about Japanese raccoon dog. Let's try to save the environment. And they train, train themselves to transform into those Shindo deities like Renjin and Fujin. Mm, so it's mm. very fantastic. Mm, thank you very thank much you. for that. Yes, yes. I'll check it out again. So I think we're going to wrap up today. Um, but first, let's thank Shoko Yoneyama, Yoneyama Sensei, uh, for coming in today and, and having this wonderful discussion. And, you know, her comments, I don't want to blow my own horn or anything, but her comments about this collection, I think, are very true. You know, we often underestimate the beauty and the sophistication of this collection. I think she is a great, wise voice on that. 
Now, one thing that both uh, Shoko and I forgot to do this weekend was what's called setsubun. And this is where you cast out the evil for the new spring and you bring in the luck. And so I thought we would, since we had forgotten and we're bad citizens of Japan, that we would do it with you. So if you're game, we'll teach you a very simple phrase and then we can act it out in a ritual for the new year and so forth. Shall we? Okay. So all you need to do is act like you have a bunch of beans in your hand, which represent, they're called mame, setsubun, and they're meant to represent the eye of the devil, essentially, or oni or whatever. And all you need to say is, uh, oni wa soto, fuku wa uchi. So out with the bad, in with the new. It's spring in Japan or close there, so, you know, it's in the northern hemisphere, but anyway. So now you've been ritually purified, you can go about on your day and... Live a happy life. Thank you very much. <laughs>